Well, it looks like we've probably waited long enough. So um, I will introduce myself uh, right now as if we have a few stragglers coming in. My name is Michael Leibline. Uh, my role here today is, uh, well, I'm the uh, assistant program chair for the STR division this year. Uh, I've been given the honor, and it is quite an honor, to facilitate this discussion with our distinguished scholar, Jay Barney. Um, so I will uh, turn over most of this to the group uh, after introducing Jay. I'll just ask that if you are here, uh, initially mute your microphone so um, we don't get as much background noise as, or we minimize the level of background noise. I'll also ask you to, uh, I know we have at least signed up uh, many, many uh, junior faculty and PhD students. Um, I'm sure Jay would love to hear your questions and respond to those, so please feel free to use the chat function. Uh, raise any questions you'd like to ask over our two-hour period. I've got a set of questions I can start us off on, but I really want to, I, I hope I talk less and, um, and you guys talk more. Um, so that's uh, at least uh, at least my goal for this, uh, um, this function. Uh, so let me move to my sort of to the man that needs no introduction, Jay Barney. Jay is the Presidential Professor of Strategic Management and Lasan Chair of Social Entrepreneurship at the University of Utah. Uh, his PhD is uh, from Yale. Somebody should ask him about this transition from his PhD uh, education to strategic management at some time during this little chat. Uh, he has honorary PhDs from several institutions, is I, I think, I don't know if the, the word is thank oh, he's he's wrapping up his time as editor-in-chief of the AMR. That turns out to be a process, not an event. <laughs> well, we thank you for your service. Um, uh, you know, I did a little bit of background work. Uh, over 300 articles published. The, 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 stu the stunning item for me was the Google Scholar. Like, I think this changes every um, week by, you know, it seems like a thousand numbers, but over 170,000 citations on Google Scholar. I did go through the um, the exercise of how many years it would take me to catch up if you stopped, and that just got depressing. So um, uh, certainly well-recognized, well-established work, uh, recognized with awards from the Academy of Management, the Strategic Management Society, as a fellow of the Academy of Management, Strategic Management Society, several major awards from for scholarly contributions from the Academy, you see here listed in 2010, from the SMS last year, the CK Prahlad Award, and uh, this year from AIB, the Jay Fairweather Eminent Scholar Award. Um, another, further recognition, uh, top, one of the top 50 most influential papers published in management science, as well as several best paper awards with uh, junior faculty and PhD students. Uh, so I, I saw best paper awards with Sharon Alvarez, Lowell Busnitz, and Ty Mackey, and I'm sure there, there may be others that I've missed, so I apologize for that. Um, but we are welcome, um, super happy to have you here with us, Jay. Um, what I'll do is sort of stop the share now, uh, start the conversation uh, with any ideas you wanna share, and then maybe we can get some Q&A going. And again, uh, hopefully inviting uh, those of us who are on the call with us to add their contributions to the chat. Any questions they have for you to the chat, excuse me. Okay, fine. So you're gonna ask me some questions now? I'm gonna ask you some questions unless you wanna make an opening statement. That I don't have, a, this is not a- uh, Okay, debate you can make you. fun of Rich's background or not. No, so. that Rich's is awesome, I like that. I, uh, I like the, I've got uh, a better one, but 
that's a different. Uh, that's right. It's a, put on a roller coaster, actually. So, Michael uh, asked okay. me about a background with the moose. I, have, Nina, have you seen the moose in my house before? I don't think you have, but I, uh, we routinely, um, well, routinely is too much, but in the fall, we, we get moose in our yard roughly once or twice a week. And, uh, and you never, that never gets boring, it turns out. <laughs> There's a moose, and we get excited, and we go look at it, and, and uh, it turns out they're very large animals, so you have to be a little careful around them. So, they, see, now we know something about you. That's so, well, Michael, you came, you came to the house once. You saw the deer, at least, I imagine. I saw the deer. I, listen, I've been in Moose Look, Magantic, Maine. So I'm just waiting <laughs> to see Moose Look something in, uh, in Utah. But, so, so maybe a, 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 a typical, oh, my God. Um, that, this is going to a new level there. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe to start us off, uh, you know, oftentimes in these, these chats, we've tried to get a little bit of background about the scholar. So, you know, if you could open up with uh, some ideas of, how did you make this transition to academia? You know, what were you doing before entering your, the doctoral program at Yale? And maybe reflect on that, your, your early uh, transition from the real world into the academic world. So um, I was, uh, my original uh, goal in life when I started college was to become a lawyer. Uh, I thought I, was, I had the gift of gab, which I, I think mistakenly thought that was something that was required to be a lawyer. There are lawyers with great gift of gab, but it's more, mostly, uh, writing, it turns out, but uh, in, my, in my experience anyway. Uh, and uh, then I discovered, I went to Brigham Young University as an undergraduate, and I discovered two things about college that I did not know. The first is I really liked it. And the second was I was really good at it. I mean, I had been an indifferent high school student. I think I averaged uh, B, uh, Bs. Um, I, I studied twice for, in high school. I still remember those two events. Uh, one was a... Uh, French vocabulary test in this, you know, I'd memorize a long list of words. And then um, the second one was an algebra two test. And that was it. And so you know, you get B's and you just go through and have a good time. But then I got to college, I said, well, maybe I'll study. And it turns out that actually helps. Who knew? And, um, and, uh, and then I, but I really, I fell in love with ideas. It was just like, wow, these are like, I, mean, I hadn't thought about these things before. And, and while I was clearly, uh, stumbling around trying to figure out what ideas for myself. I was nevertheless impressed with, the, with ideas. I, I originally um, majored in sociology as an undergraduate and, uh, and uh, so decided to, uh, since I, you know, uh, what career advice do we give people? If you find something you love and you're good at it, make that your career. So I just went to college and never left. Um, so unlike a lot of people, I did not uh, take uh, two or three years off and work or anything like that. Um, I had some small jobs, part-time jobs, but nothing like a career or anything like that. And uh, instead just uh, went right to graduate school. So I started, started college early and I started uh, graduate school early. So that was like, uh, I think I was 20 when I started as a PhD student. My original area was in sociology at Yale. This has a good sociology department. Um, but um, after the uh, first year and a half, I, I was studying uh, mathematical sociology and social network theory in the sociology department, working with uh, some people who were probably really well known and still really well known in the social network area. And uh, 
but um, after taking all the stats classes and methods classes and the math classes and things, it became clear to me that that I needed to get a substantive area to study. That is, I, it was I need to marry the methods and the, with a, a topic. And so uh, they were they were having a, they had a series of seminars, PhD seminars, on topics in sociology. But but back then, and I don't know if this is true or not today, but back then they were. There weren't any sort of um, classes on general theory, broader theoretical issues in sociology. They were much more, they were very topical, like the sociology of sports, which would have been cool, but I didn't do it. Or the sociology of medicine, or the sociology of science, or the sociology. And, um, and so they were very, they were very data-driven. They were very um, fact-based, uh, descriptive almost. Um, and, some had, I mean, I'm not discounting all that work, of course, but some had, so some had some theoretical, broader theoretical implications, but as I read the materials in, in advance, I wasn't, um, none of them captured my imagination. So it turns out, fortuitously, that um, the old sociology department at Yale was literally right across the street, street from the School of Organization and Management. So I, I wandered over there um, um, and, um, Ended up taking a um, doctoral seminar from a guy named Bob Miles. Some of you may know Bob. He's, I imagine he's retired. He's at Emory, left Yale, went to Harvard, and then went to Emory. Um, and um, <clears throat> uh, I took a class in organization theory from him, so, so sociology of organizations. And uh, so that was the, the trend. That, and then uh, that became interesting to me. Um, uh, and then I ended up um, forming a joint degree, the only joint PhD ever, I believe, between sociology and the School of Organization and Management, uh, and uh, finished my dissertation. Although my dissertation was primarily from the sociology background, it was an application of um, social network modeling techniques on a, on a big data set. Basically, they were published in some odd places um, from those early years. Well, I mean, they're not odd if you're a sociologist. I mean, I published a, an article in journals called Surprising. Social Networks. And, Surprising you know, places. Yes. Well, actually, you know, publication was, uh, it was uh, my experience with publication uh, early on in my career. My, my first year as a assistant professor at UCLA, I, I, I think I published uh, one paper in the Academy of Management Review, and it was actually pretty easy to get done. I mean, I just, I, I wrote it up, they gave me some comments, I made revision, and it was accepted. Uh, I thought, oh, geez, this publication, and people say this is hard, this is not that difficult. I mean, I just did this easily. Uh, and then uh, five years later, I published my second paper. Um, <laughs> but I was working really hard, trust me, I was, I was, always uh, writing and always had stuff that stuff was just not clicking. And uh, so it took, uh, so I discovered that in fact, this publication stuff is actually really hard. The first one was the aberration, not the, not the typical thing. I've told, I tell students even today, I say, um, there's been no publication of mine ever that didn't, I didn't have to claw and fight my way into the journal. I mean, this is not, this is never easy for anybody. This has never been easy for me. Yeah, it says more about me than anything else, but that's, that's absolutely the case. 
Well, since you've started, so Asim has reminded me that, uh, and we have made this public, Jay did win, is about to win another major award. So that's in the chat. So thank you for thank uh, you. raising that, Asim. We're, we're unsure if we we're going to, when we we're going to publicize that exactly. But uh, the, what's interesting is I, we've got a, some questions from Professor McGann and Professor McAdoc that are sure. getting can, right to it. So, okay, um, go right ahead. In your own words, uh, Anita, so let's let this conversation of community and can you help us? Uh, sure. So uh, I can't wait to hear the answers to Rich's questions, but uh, uh, they'll put us on an emotional roller coaster, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> but uh, my community, my question has more to do with community. So uh, what I've acknowledged here is that one of the most wonderful things about Jay, and there are very, very many wonderful things about Jay, but one of them is how great he is at creating scholarly community. And uh, I can testify that Jay is is a feminist. He's he's championed me and many of our friends. He's he's um, a, an advocate for junior scholars, for doctoral students. He cares about each of us as individuals, um, and all of that are part of the ingredients of creating community um, around Jay, which um, I every day come to value even more. Um, and, and I've written here that for many years, my rule of thumb at conferences was where's the OSU party? And now it's where's the Utah party? And Mike, I'm, I'm sorry about that. Uh, I apologize. Uh, so am I, I still go to the OSU that's party. another story. I wanted to ask how we sustain academic community now that we're on Zoom instead of together in person, since all of that sort of warmth and affective connection is so, is so different. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I would actually, I suspect that the notion of a sense of community, a common culture, a commitment towards scholarship and to each other is actually even more important under, in the world of Zoom world where it's sort of easy um, to um, <clears throat> squat to lunch and have interesting conversations, but that's hard to do now. And so we have to, we have to become more aggressive. I'm, I'm sure we're still learning how to do that. It is the case that um, we just hired a new um, postdoc. Um, and uh, I actually had a chance to have lunch with her up to this point. I've, I've had three interactions with her um, via Zoom. And I said, I, I don't even know if you have legs. I mean, it's, really, it's such a bizarre interaction effect, right? Um, way to interact with each other. Um, but we had, we had lunch, but we, but, um, I found, I, I, I miss early days, but you know, um, she's got great data. She's got an interesting question. Um, she didn't know how to position that in the strategy literature. I think that we were able to accomplish a lot uh, um, by in these kinds of interactions, really interesting conversations. It is, it is the case we've, you know, I don't get sanguine here, but but uh, building communities is about uh, caring about each other, you know, and it's caring intellectually, which is extremely important because if we don't have those intellectual connections, then it's a social club, and I'm not interested in that. I get I can do that elsewhere. Um, so it's about, about caring about each other, but also being proactive in in sharing uh, that caring. So we've had you know we've had some recent sad events in our department. This is not for public. I'm just mentioning this. Some, some individuals have faced some difficult times and uh, I've been impressed with how our uh, faculty have reached out, not in an overbearing way. It's always a you know, tough issue to do, but uh, to balance. But um, 
And I think that in the long run, that's what, uh, where a sense of intellectual community comes from is this, this sense of personal caring. Now, if someone is trying to figure out then how to, how can they build, help build an intellectual community? Um, you know, first you got to care about the people and I can't do anything about that. That's up to you. I will say that um, some of my fondest memories are uh, events, many of which Anita attended, by the way, um, where we got uh, people with really diverse backgrounds together um, in a really cool setting. Uh, I had this, I created this conference with Jeff Harrison on, it's called Crossroads and Stakeholder Theory. And it was an extension of the SMS conference in Denver. And I said, let's, let's, I said, let's run this conference at Zion National Park. And if you've never been there before, it is a breathtaking place. And, uh, and I think that it's interesting. I think there's been an intellectual community that's come out of that event uh, over the years. Uh, but a diverse set of people joined in a common interest in a broad question. And then, and then the, the, the actual experience was one of conversation, not debate. It was one of uh, learning from each other rather than trying to dominate the conversation. And, and I know it's had a big impact on, on my work and some of the work that me and I are doing together. It's a hard, it's a hard thing to figure out how to do, Menina, but. Well, maybe that's something we can even come back to. Or Anita, you want to follow up on that? Um, no, I think it's a great segue to Rich's questions. Yeah, yeah. So, Rich, you've got, you know, several questions here, but uh, let me group them together in your words. Okay. Rich, Rich I, I, I did do, do a shtick in Rich's PhD seminar. I know. I usually just press play, and Jay goes for about 40 <laughs> minutes. And at the end, we have a few questions. But this is this I like this. This is good. So, what's your question, Brent? So, this is a, a complementary to that. Um, so, what, what, in your experience, what does it mean to be a good colleague? Oh, gee. And and who have you observed being an especially good colleague, and what made them so good at it? Oh wow. So. Um, I, I think that, uh, and but these are much different questions than I expected. <laughs> I thought we'd be talking about the difference between transaction cost economics and research-based, you know, whatever. Um, I, I see a little girl. Uh, what's your name? Yeah. You're muted. Yeah, so her name is Mary. Hi, how are you? Um, many years ago, uh, a doctoral student told me about, he was having a phone call with a colleague and he had a, uh, he had a, uh, a four-year-old daughter or son, I don't remember, but four-year-old child. And uh, they were talking about some of my work and the, uh, and the doctor said, no, Barney says this. And then they said, no, Barney says that. And this little four-year-old was getting all excited, Barney, Barney. And finally, uh, the, dad, the dad said, no, sweetheart. You have your Barney, we have our Barney. <laughs> how do you be a good colleague? Um, how do you be a good friend? Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the same question. I, you know, um, in hiring decisions, um, we, 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 try to, we try to hire in anticipation of a collegiality. Um, 
uh, this life is too short to, to work with miserable people. <laughs> it just is. And uh, they're not going to be willing to make, well, the language you would use, make specific investments in, in each other, uh, then the possibility of co-creation is very low. So I, I'm, I mean, so first of all, it comes with selection and, and then, uh, and then if you can't, if someone lets you be a good colleague, then you, then you, it starts with caring about them, being a friend and, and, uh, I don't know. I always thought I had an obligation that when we hired a PhD student or brought a PhD student on or hired an assistant professor, that there was an implicit contract there that said our job is to help them be successful. If they fail, which happens a lot, I'm not saying that I have this worked out 100% or anything, but if they fail, that's probably my responsibility. I didn't give them the mentoring they needed or I hired the wrong person. I mean, if, if you it, you know, you can get excited about a person and think uh, about their ideas, but, but that they don't have a willingness to work hard and uh, dedication and a creativity and an openness to learning, um, those kinds of things, then, then that's not going to be successful. I can't do much about those. So we try to select, the, select on those criteria. But then, assuming we've done that well and the person struggles, then their struggle is my struggle. I mean, and I, it, that is... I, I think that's actually really much the case. Um, now, you don't, I, I, this is gonna sound very, very bad, but it's kind of like raising children, you know, you don't, you can't, um, you can't give them everything, you can't spoon feed them. Um, they, have, they have to learn to fail, they have to learn on their own, they have to have those challenges. But there are some, there are some people who are open to those kinds of mentoring opportunities, others. I mean, I, I, I think I've had some um, I talked, I was talking to one uh, co-author on the phone and, and uh, just, just re really giving them a difficult time. You know, you got to this, 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 this is changing. My wife said, you are so mean. <laughs> so I, don't, I thought it was actually being helpful, but, <laughs> but it, it's straightforward. So I don't, I don't pretend, but I, I guess it starts with a sense of responsibility. Um, and uh I, I, I will also say one more thing. I, I really, um, one of the um, big mistakes I made as an assistant professor is I adopted the assumption, I'm not sure why, I'm sure there's some deep reason for it. I adopted the assumption that somehow publication and success in this field is a zero-sum game, that if Rich Mackillock published a paper, that somehow that means I wouldn't publish a paper. That's, uh, that's, of course, absurd. It's not a zero-sum game at all. It's in fact, a, it is, in fact, an intellectual community using any of this language. I would say uh, some of my best friends uh, are my colleagues uh, around the world um, in strategic management. And so um, if you begin with understanding that it's a community and a sense of and that we have a common sense of purpose, and that it, in fact is not a zero-sum game. When Rich publishes another brilliant paper, that that actually makes me more successful because I'm able to read it, understand it, and it has an impact on my work. And uh, and that's what it means to be part of the intellectual community. So, don't make life any more of a competition than it has to be. Well, I mean, there, there's enough, there's enough, especially today, I mean, I just, there's enough fracturing and arguing and 
discussion. And by the way, I'm not arguing, uh, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't have debates and disagreements. Everyone here who knows me knows I am more than willing to engage in intellectual debate and conversation, but I have actually never, never found any intellectual point or political point that was worth sacrificing a friendship. None. So, so if, if it comes, if, if it's moving in that direction, I just stop. It's not worth it. I don't want to, I don't want to win an argument, lose a friend. The friend is something that will pay dividends for everybody, including the two of us for decades. Wow, me, this is so different than I expected. <laughs> this is, we got better <laughs> questions. I don't know. <laughs> we got better questions coming from the pool. We're crowdsourcing. And maybe we'll come back to Rich on, uh, on the mentorship and rookie talks later. But I heard the fragmentation comment, which ties into something Tammy Madsen is raised. So maybe, Tammy, you want to talk about... Uh, raise your question to the group. And again, if there's junior folks on the call who want to uh, pipe in, please add your hey, questions Tammy. to the chat. You're muted. There you go. Uh, thanks, Jay. Thanks for your time. And, and thanks to SDR Division for doing all these events. They're, they're fantastic. Um, so, you know, the field is sort of evolving and ebbs and flows, fragmented, core, non-fragmented. We seem to be spreading out quite a bit. Um, that, that periphery continues to spread out further and further. And sure. I wonder if you could speak to what your thoughts are about how, how the field's evolving. Where do, you, where do you see it? Where do you see some fruitful avenues for sort of the way that we think about the field of strategy in the future? Um, and how can strategy research help to sort of integrate some of these uh, ideas that are kind of somewhat distant from the original kind of core canonical questions? Yeah, it's uh, interesting. I'm actually, I'm, I think I'm writing an essay for Michael's uh, um, journal uh, on sort of, uh, if you go back to the uh, fundamental issues and strategy book that was edited by Thies Rimelton and uh, Dan Shandell uh, coming out of the, out of the uh, conference in Napa. And then asking how we've done, are these two questions still important? So we're, I'm beginning to think about those issues a little bit. Um, so uh, before, I, before I started AMR, at AMR, <clears throat> I, um, I wanted to get a sense of the strategy field. Um, I was, I was going to make some editorial policy changes at AMR. For example, <laughs> um, it was going to be okay to submit mathematical models and simulations. But uh, yeah, it just happened. <laughs> but um, before I did that, I wanted to see, because those were mostly going to be in strategy, a little bit in OT, but mostly in strategy. I wanted to see what percentage of strategy papers were actually using models and simulations. So the, the result of that was I went through, I think it was seven, eight years of SMJs um, and just read the abstract enough to get a sense of the, the uh, to, to count the number of modeling versus uh, and simulation papers. By the way, it's about eight, eight to 10%. So at least it was back then. Um, but I asked that, uh, but it had another effect, which was um, uh, as I read those articles, uh, each article was deeply impressive. I mean, really, I mean, I mean, just so sophisticated, 
technically and you know multiple robustness checks and you know just absolutely nailed things really impressive i wasn't sure it added up to much by the way well, that was the problem is that each article was amazing but uh just reading the article published in smj i didn't understand what strategy was about i found that a little discouraging um but on the other hand, I mean, I have to take a long-term view of these things, you know. Um, uh, in the early 80s, we, the field was dominated by a series of what, at least to us, were new theories. Um, uh, I mean, if you think about uh, positioning theory and, and positioning theory, resource-based theory, evolutionary theory, transaction cost theory, incomplete contracting. I've probably missed some, but you get the point. And this was in the 80s and early 90s. Let me think about that. It was just like a, a, just a it was the golden age of theorizing in, in the field strategy. And then, and then uh, for the next decade or so, there was a lot of work that's testing the empirical, empirical implications of those theories and putting them off against each other. It was really uh, a lot of people on, on the screen here have contributed to that part of the conversation. And then, um, and then there was the, uh, and then there's been, I think, more recently in the time that I look like, there was a move away from trying to test implications of one of these core theories to really much more research that was uh, very carefully done empirical work, um, examining a particular data set. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, it's methods finding data set, and then somehow we'll try to link it to strategy in some broad way. Um, my, but my, my expectation is that, that, is that over time, uh, that too will get old and we'll see that it has limitations. It has great strength. I'm not here criticizing the work. I said each of these articles are awesome, but what do they add up to? Then people will say, you know, we need to do, strategy needs to be more than just about trying to uh, apply uh, rigorous methods to analyze a, a data set. It has to be about answering questions that are uniquely strategic in nature. And, uh, and so my expectation is that over time that it, it's very likely we'll see another movement emerge where people like yourselves will start uh, trying to bring these desperate, uh, desperate um, papers together and start asking bigger questions or more fundamental questions. The, the thing about us as a field is you can define our research core research question in a variety of ways but i mean these days i'm sort of drawn to the um profit generation appropriation model but there are others and they're they're all they all have advantages disadvantages and they're closely linked anyway so um but you know we still haven't exactly completely answered that question you know it's actually a it's still a really hard question and by the way, as a field linked with practice to some extent, it's a question that is deeply interesting to many managers. Um, and so, um, so I'm, I'm actually, I guess I'm cautiously optimistic that um, as the field matures, as the, and which by which I mean another generation of young people come together and say, you know, my career has to be more than just publishing the next um, empirical examination of the data set uh, in a top journal. It has to be 
it has to be me more than that. And that would be the, that would be the thing I would hope for. Hopefully it will happen. Well, yeah, that's great. I think that you'll be happy to hear. I think Asim and Zhao were uh, doing a similar exercise that you did for AMR uh, with the STR division, and that's had some influence on how the new editorial team at AMJ is going to be receptive to particular uh, theory and methods keywords. So really? keeping on the oh, good great. work. I'm glad to hear that, Asim. What, what did you do? Did you look at uh, AMJ publications or? Um, actually, it was it wasn't so much AMJ. It was it was the it was the stream of papers we get coming into the academy and management conference, oh, okay. right? So we oh, we took yeah. all the keywords and we sort of figured out what the themes were, uh, and we and, and AMJ was kind enough to uh, allow us to sort of suggest new keywords. So the AMJ keywords are actually going to change. Oh, really? Uh, to reflect you know some of the new thinking uh, in 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 the field of strategy as well as. Uh, and actually, I mean, the, the interesting thing is SDR actually covers a lot of things that AMJ doesn't think of as strategy, right? So social movements and, oh, yeah. you know, stakeholder theory doesn't actually get counted under strategy. It count, it's counted under social, you know, issues and management, which, yeah. you know, I'm sure you have some thoughts on. But, um, but, but so we are actually trying to sort of re-kind of change what what the keyword and very good very good i'm glad to hear that that's great uh, and amr is doing likewise is adopting the str uh keyword. oh yeah what's this interesting across, is, this is across the academy journals the intent here was to try to ensure that they reflect sort of the full uh, audience that the academy yeah. serves um and not just a subset of that audience shall we say yeah tammy is being very politically correct yeah the uh, i mean I, I actually have data on uh, uh, on this that i think uh, confirms many of our suspicions uh, for, for a period of roughly uh i'd have to look up the data but it was about five or six years i think it's something like that um uh, i categorized all of the papers that had been published in amr or were had been accepted and were forthcoming in amr and I categorize them in a micro macro. It's very hard to do anything besides very broad categories. So it's a methodological flaw, but nevertheless, it was just me. And uh, I think it was 87% were micro. And that's just, you know, these are academy journals. These are not OB journals. And by the way, I'm not criticizing any of those articles. I'm not saying they were bad articles. I mean, they were really pretty good. Um, but it, the intellectual diversity was is really an important issue, and so I am glad to hear you guys are doing that. Anita, you had a question. I was just going to say this relates to Tammy's point about fragmentation because yeah. what's happening is that the the there are several divisions of the academy that are very large that are micro oriented, that uh, organizational behavior, organizational theory, um, that have. Um, a kind of agglomerations of other types of divisions around them, such as, you know, HRM and industrial relations and uh, on the uh, OMT side, you know, there's, there's, there's um, various methods, divisions and so on. And they, they tend to be overrepresented in the academy because in the academy leadership and in the journal leadership, because uh, the people tend to vote uh, in the academy elections uh, for members of their own divisions yeah. uh, in the elections. So it's, it's, it's very important for us to vote. So, it, uh, you know, and if you don't know uh, who to vote for, I would, I would recommend learning a little bit about the candidates. 
um, yeah. because it matters a lot to how 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 uh, you know how much access we have to journals uh, to academy journals and how much visibility we have. Sorry. Well, the good, the good news at AMR. So uh, my my one of the things I'm probably the most proud of at AMR is was that I had I created a really intellectually diverse um, AE panel. Uh, choosing your associate editors is everything. <laughs> That's the whole story because they make ninety percent of the substantive decisions. And uh, you know, I am in my uh, my goal. I stated explicit goal was to choose a panel of AEs that. Um, as soon as, as soon as you read that person's name, you would know the work they had done. And you would know they had contributed theoretically in important area. And we did that. I mean, it's an impressive group. And the good news is Sherry Thatcher, who is uh, the AMR editor, the new AMR editor, has, I think done about the same thing. I mean, uh, Rich, you're on the, on the board. Uh, you're an AE, right? And uh, Kyle Myers and AE, and I mean, the, the people, these are people that we know and respect, and the OB folks are also people that we know and respect. So I think hopefully that the need for that intellectual uh, diversity is becoming institutionalized to some extent. It's funny about stakeholders. There are two stakeholder theories, by the way. There are two completely different worlds out there. And, and, uh, and every once in a while, they bump into each other, and it's not pretty. Uh, so. <laughs> It's fun to watch, um, but a hard problem to solve. So, so maybe a, w a way to transition to this is uh, Trevor Israelson had a, a question. Uh, maybe it was uh, about communicating ideas. Um, I'll let Trevor ask that, but I mean, maybe it's not just even strategy scholars given this, but the broader management community. Sure. So Trevor, sure. you want to rephrase your question? Yeah, so I was, I was intrigued, Jay, when you were talking at first about your own journey through the PhD program in sociology and then coming into uh, management and being familiar with, with your work, it's, it's apparent that you had this um, unorthodox approach that you were communicating very effectively to an audience of strategic management scholars. And I'm just, I, I feel like a lot of my work that I'm the way that I think about things is, is kind of seen as unorthodox and I want to figure out how to communicate it more persuasively to uh, mm. strategy scholars yeah that's a hard thing to do I don't I don't I don't have an algorithm <laughs> plug-in paper outcome persuasion it would be nice um, it's um, I said earlier that I've never had a paper that I didn't have to uh, claw and scratch my way into publication. And it's always a hard process. It's always difficult. Um, I do think that, um, so, so one of the things I saw at AMR, which was a little discouraging, was uh, just overall sloppiness in writing. Just like, you know, you, you didn't use the right word. It's just one word out of the entire paper, but it turns out to be the critical word and you use the wrong word and you don't, you know, and, it, it, and uh, the, the people who write with me uh, when, we, when we finally get to close to final drafts are always amazed. I'm a pretty easygoing guy, you know, whatever you wanna do is fine, I'm pretty flexible. And then all of a sudden I become this anal compulsive, no, that's the wrong dang word. We gotta use that word, not that word. Well, then aren't they synonyms? No, but there's a nuance here. I mean, I just go crazy. 
Um, I uh, I was talking to my wife about this recently. She's uh, she's uh, um, she's often um, gives me good insights and uh, about myself. And uh, she um, and the, the question that, that, that came up was about writing. And she she reviews. Uh, she's a professional genealogist, and she reviews. Uh, uh, she helps uh, get genealogists get the credit that she writes the tests and evaluates them, those kinds of things. She says, and some people just can't write. It's just like, they, this is the first sentence in their report is not a complete sentence. This is not a good sign, okay? And I said, I, and I quoted to her the uh, first paragraph of a paper that I wrote, well, now almost 20 years ago. Um, and she said, you quoted it. And he says, yeah. It took me six weeks to write the first paragraph. I mean, I've never worked as hard as, on anything as that first paragraph, except the second paragraph, which I also also can almost quote. And this is 20 years ago. So um, it's, it's to me, it's a matter of, of that kind of focus and dedication. Um, you know, we get feedback from good friends and they tell us lies. So they're not, that, that's not useful. So, uh, you know, I always say you get feedback from, uh, from acquaintances, you get the truth. It can't be strangers because they won't do it. So, but acquaintances, you might be able to get that from them. Um, but just a, just a commitment to just being very, very careful and precise in your conversation. With regard to the particular question of, of how do you come to, how do you uh, come to, uh, if you have an unorthodox approach, how does that, how do you communicate that? I think it's actually, uh, we can learn a little bit from uh, good salespeople. Um, they, 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 you know this is a good idea. You, you believe strongly this is a good idea. In fact, no, no, it's not believe. You know it's a good idea. The problem is I don't know it's a good idea. So your task is to figure out how your solution can fix one of my problems. And I may, it may not even be a problem I know I have. And so that becomes the persuasion um, experience. And so, um, and so you, you, knowing your audience here is um, extremely important. One of the costs of not having our meetings together is that the way you get to know the, this audience to write to them is just to hang around. It's not going to a particular paper session. Well, that can be helpful. And, or a panel session, that, that can be actually more helpful. But just go to dinner with these people and, and what's, what's, what, are the, what's, what are the questions that are burning for them that are, that are, why are they, what are they frustrated about in their own work? Why are they not making progress? And then, and then if you can figure out a way to solve their problem, then all of a sudden they're on your side. So I, I always tell people, don't leave with your chin, don't say, <laughs> Everything that's ever been written about this topic is stupid. And let me explain to you why. Well, you're gonna get those reviewers and they're not gonna respond. But if instead you say, one of the challenges in the area has been this, and we all agree with that problem, but it turns out there's another way of solving it. And now you're a hero. You've said the same thing, but now you're a hero instead of a villain. So, but just pay attention to detail and then figure out how to solve someone's problems and then you'll you'll be able to be successful. I mean, uh, let me give you a, a specific example. So um, I wrote this uh, paper on stakeholders uh, and, um, 
and uh, competitive advantage and economic profit. And um, I originally submitted to AMR. This is before I was the editor of AMR, obviously. And um, the editor, I mean, he's a reasonable guy, and his choice was to send it out to uh, what he, I think he was thinking relatively friendly reviewers that were stakeholder people. And, uh, and uh, but I wasn't solving a problem with them, see? <laughs> they, already, they already, they were already true, true believers. So it wasn't a matter for them of trying to uh, uh, convince them, they were already convinced. And so they kept saying, well, why don't you use this argument? Because this is well established in the stakeholder literature. Or use this argument, this is well established in the stakeholder literature. Well, I wasn't, I didn't write that paper for stakeholder people. I wrote the paper for strategy people. I needed strategy reviewers, not stakeholder reviewers. Because I thought, I, I think I can solve a problem for strategy people, but I can't solve the problem for stakeholder people since they've already solved that problem for themselves. So, um, so that paper went through a couple of rounds and it was going in the wrong direction. And one of the great advantages of being a full professor and all those things is I can say, this is not going right, I withdrew the paper. Now, I used the excuse that I was coming to the editor of the AMR to withdraw the paper, although technically I could have continued. I think it would have not looked good, but, um, and I resubmitted SMJ and then I got three reviewers or two reviewers, excuse me, that um, I was solving a problem that they had. And all of a sudden I was the good guy. Instead of being redundant, I was being new. That I, I, when I present that paper, I start by saying, if you're a stakeholder person, this is not gonna change your mind already at, at all, because you're already, you're already there. But if you're a strategy person like me, who for 40 years or 30 years, whatever, argue that uh, for shareholder supremacy, then um, you should listen carefully because you may change your mind. I'm going to solve a problem for you. So that's a specific example. Yeah, I, I, I see two questions. I, I want to make sure we're engaging our junior folks. And I see two questions. Um, one is from, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your name, uh, Zhang Cheng, and talking about linking uh, uh, a behavioral perspective to strategy. And a second is from Nikisha and uh, asking a lot about joining the conversation and in particular, uh, a litmus test to make sure you're part of this. And I think I've heard some of this in your recent comments, um, you know, go to the academy and have lunch with somebody and understand their parts, uh, their, their challenges. Um, I, I recall you had an AMR paper where you were talking about, you had your sort of gap analysis that you would go through and how you would link to uh, two different audiences and maybe solve a problem for them. And maybe that would be helpful. I mean, I'll invite John Cheng and Nikisha to sort of pipe in, but it seems to me that that experience might be helpful to what they're trying to ask. Well, we, we, we define there's two kinds of uh, contributions at AMR. Um, one of them is where you take a current uh, body of literature and you extend it in some new direction. And then, um, and 90% of the papers that are published at AMR are in that category. And then, then there's, uh, uh, the papers that say, you know, interesting, but this entire conversation is wrong. What we need is a radical change. And uh, that's a less common event, um, higher risk in some ways, but, but also high, high returns if it works. Um, so um, junior people ask me sometimes, they start by saying, is, does it really make sense to try to write theory papers? 
I, I'm, I'm, I'm a very weird guy on lots of dimensions, but one of the weird ways that I'm weird is that I have almost no empirical papers. I think maybe six or seven. And I'm always the third author because I'm the theory guy and they worry about the methods guy, the methods. Now remember, my original work was in mathematical sociology. I actually taught the, the statistics classes to the PhD students, MBA students at, uh, at Yale. Um, uh, I was one of the TAs. So I mean, it's not that I'm anti-methods and those kinds of things. That's what I sort of did for a long time. But, um, but, but most, of my, most of my work is theory work. And so people will, general people said, should I take the risks of writing a theory paper writing? That sounds so difficult and on and on. Well, I've, I've always thought that our best hope for really innovative theory, that is the second kind of innovation, comes from assistant professors, from doctoral students. Because uh, the rest of us have spent sometimes decades becoming uh, so ossified in a particular point of view that we helped create our own in some ways intellectually that we're useless when it comes to innovation. I mean, it's going to be much harder for us. Um, I mean, I, I'll just a personal example, again, speaking to this 2018 SMJ paper on stakeholders. Um, the essential insight of that paper, to the extent there is one, um, already existed in my 1986 management science paper on strategic factor markets. I just wasn't smart enough to see it. It took me 30 years to sort of figure out what are the implications of the paper that I wrote. It's a very weird thing to sort of say that I didn't understand my own paper fully. Um, but younger people who aren't so committed to a particular theoretical point of view, it seems to me, may have intellectual flexibility to do that. So, so yeah, is it risky? Yeah, it's hard, yeah. But, it, but writing all papers is risky and writing all papers are hard. That's, that's, that's a common thing. Um, but for the good of the field, um, I, I actually encourage uh, young people to try to give it a shot, to get, be, be creative. And, uh, and and try to do something really interesting and different. Yeah, it resonates. I, I, I had this guy, uh, Mike Salini, used to run a th about a third of Accenture come in, to, you know, to a room. And it's like every month you work with me, you know, you're more likely to think like me. That's not what I need. I need something. <laughs> That's you know? so right. That is so right. Well, there have been times in my own career, uh, when, you know, when. Um, when uh, we hired uh, Sharon Alvarez at Ohio State, and as part of my, what I consider, as I said earlier, part of my obligation to work with uh, new hires, um, she introduced me to the entrepreneurship literature, which at the time was a mess, to be frank. I mean, it was not, it seemed to me not to be organized nicely into a set of well-formed research questions. I'm trying to be gentle here. and. Uh, and, and, and we started on a journey that just led, has led to things that I would never have thought about. And she was, she was just, you know, just an assistant professor, but I learned a lot from that process and, uh, and it's been a lot of fun and also painful and difficult and challenging, but, but a lot of fun. And, uh, and so uh, that's kind of what I did. And, and, I, and I wrote the, um, again, in my personal career, I wrote the first 
two resource-based theory papers, the uh, paper that became uh, Sushuk Factor Markets and the paper that became um, uh, the general management paper. I wrote them both the first drafts in 1984 and I, I was 30 years old, so assistant professor. So, I mean, I can't happen. So I've been asked to, uh, to interrupt our, inter our interview for a, a brief moment. So the STR division uh, uh, has asked for a photo op. So um, I will ask those of you who are on online here, if you can uh, unhide your, uh, well, uh, turn your videos on or put a picture of you on. And uh, I think I will get a private message when we have a photo of everybody on this call or many of the people on this call. So if you want, you can wave and, and like, like Professor Mack, <laughs> do strange faces, but that's just, you know. Uh, we'll, we'll go, uh, everybody's ready? Okay. Okay, I think we- All good. right, all right. We got, that, we got that out of the way. There will be more fun later, I promise. Okay. Uh, this is gonna fall to a seam, but uh, that, will, that, will, that will come later. So, so Bucky, I, I see another, so, I mean, I've got a set of questions. Jay's been primed for a set of questions. We're not going there. We're gonna go, uh, you know. Wherever you guys wanna take it. So, so I think this is more important to get the community engaged. Uh, yeah, but, but Bucky, you had a question for Jay about uh, his theory development process. Do you wanna ask that in your? Yes, thank you very much, uh, Michael. Hi, Jay. Um, thank you for taking the time to do this. Um, so my question, so first of all, thank you so much for saying it's okay for people who are just starting to think about coming up with theories, because given my background prior to the PhD, my brain tends to go that way. And I've put in all, <laughs> thank you. I've put in a whole lot of effort to try and make sure that I'm sound empirically as well. Sure, um, sure. But I was literally having a thought this morning because I was sitting down here writing some just early hours this morning on a paper and I started realizing that the paper really wanted to be a theory paper and I was sort of like stressing out over that like okay maybe I love that language there by the way the paper really wanted to be a theory paper I, I know exactly <laughs> what that means uh -huh. thank you so I just thought maybe you, if you can tell us some more about your process of theory rising and like how do those ideas come up do you is it a situation where you really do look at the expanse of literature that or some new work that is coming in and you're like, okay, this needs organizing or, or are you more phenomenon driven and you're like, this is what I see happening in the environment or in the business that is going on right now. And this needs to be organized or put together in some sort of framework so that managers can make predictions. That's the latter is sort of how I'm thinking, but the trouble with that is now I have to figure out how to anchor whatever it is I'm talking about in existing literature. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I just thought maybe if you say share some 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 of your own uh, process, then maybe it might give me some sort of guidance. Thank you. Well, the elements of all those things. Um, I do have a um, a, um, a reasonably active consulting career um, that brings me into contact with uh, real companies, real organizations. Um, real managers sort of dealing with things. Uh, and <clears throat> when I see uh, smart, successful managers um, doing things and saying things that don't make sense to me, uh, that's a theory opportunity. See, <laughs> so what, what, I don't, why did you say that? That's strange. Um, and then, and uh, my, I'm, 
excuse me, I haven't found um, man most managers to be particularly good theorists, by the way. So uh, I, I, when you ask them for an answer, an explanation for why they, they are talking about these things, that's not very helpful normally. But that's not the point. The point is these are smart people who have an enormously developed intuition about business and strategy. And they're doing this and, and it's working and I don't understand it. Uh, I mean, a specific example, so to make it less abstract, is one of the reasons I got interested in stakeholder theory is that I'm, I have these really smart, hardworking, successful CEOs talking about stakeholders. Are you guys out of your mind? Don't you know your only job is to maximize returns to shareholders? And they would look at me and say, you know, I don't think that's right. And that would be the, and so I, that was one source of, one source of inspiration. Anita? I don't know if you saw Greg Mankiw's editorial in the New York Times about how business managers are bad at Theory. maximizing. Oh yeah. Did you see that? I didn't, no, no. It's, a, I wonder if um, we can find you the link. I'll try to find it for you. But um, it, he basically says that the problem with shareholder, the shareholder orientation, and this is shareholder orientation post Utah conference, not the prior version. Um, we, we should call it the Utah view. <laughs> um, that the problem is that most managers are not very good at it. That's yeah. the reason they're failing at it. That's the reason yeah. that they're committed to uh, the 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 um, the shareholder view is, is because they have they've been tooled up in business schools uh, to do that. Asim, true to true to form, picked up on uh, that and has circulated that in the chat. Uh -huh. I wanted to build on Bucky's question and ask you. To what extent does your theorizing sometimes reflect the reality around, you know, your experience of uh, these firms that you consult to and the reality of the choices that the managers that you, that you, that you uh, talk with, the reality that they face and the problems that they face versus, you know, emerging from the papers and the literature? Yeah, uh, I, as I said, <coughs> excuse me, I think that's important. I, but I actually, I don't want to overstate it. Um, I mean, I think that, I think that it, our research and our theoretical work and our research can have a huge practical implications for managers. And we're seeing, we continue to see that going forward as this conversation continues to grow. Um, so, so, so my theorizing is informed by practice, but it's not but it's not, it's not a simple link between, oh, I see this, therefore I ask this theoretical question. I mean, mostly it's staring at the computer until it confesses, you know. Um, it, it's, uh, um, I, I like to, I like to, I have described it in the past as um, that I write my papers backwards. That is, I start with, I would really like to be able to make this conclusion. Why? Because it would offend somebody or it would make them have to rethink their, just, you have an intuition about what a really fun conclusion. Like, I mean, again, it's because of recency bias, obviously, but the SMJ 2018, I thought, wouldn't it be fun to conclude that in order to have economic, in order for a firm to generate economic profits, they 
have to, uh, more than shareholders have to be residual claimants. Not, not just that would be a good idea, not that it's ethically right, that it's logically a requirement. I thought that would be, I would like to be able to write a paper that showed that was true. Now, that was, idea of course came from a context of the literature and the context of working with companies that were doing stakeholder oriented things and all those other things. Um, so I mean, so so there was that context, but but I I, I said I said about said can I write an argument? This is uh, that 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 concludes this. And of course, the way you want to do that is you write it backwards. You say, well, this is where I want to end up. So what do I have to do to get there? Let's step by step back until I I can start with a set of assumptions or definitions that actually. Everybody in the field would agree with. And then I start there. So what's the definition of an economic profit? What's the definition of stakeholders? And, and in those settings, I'm not going to try to put new definitions. I'm gonna take other people's definitions, other people's assumptions. And then I'm just gonna go, on, and, and then I'm gonna start there. And then what I wanna do is I wanna take a reader who completely disagrees with my conclusion and take them by the hand gently and walk them step by step through the process. And usually about two thirds of the way through, they say, no, no, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. But it's too late, see, they can't, they're already there. And then, and then they get to the conclusion and they hate it, but they can't disagree with it. Uh, that's, you're talking about the process, that's the, that's the theory writing process I try to do. And it's really hard, I'm not pretending I got it nailed and took, Took me three years to write the SMJ 2018 paper, and uh, and uh, and to do it, I convened two separate conferences and from around the world. And I, I mean, I had so much to learn to to understand what I had to do. But um, that was literally the process: start with the speculation, then work backwards, and then write it forwards so that people will understand it. So. What's interesting to me in terms of its managerial implications. Uh, I think now, and not just not me, but those of us who are in this conversation, Anita and I are working on some things. I think we now have things to say to managers about stakeholders that they haven't thought of yet. <laughs> I mean, I think we can proactively add to the conversation rather than, than just to be part of it. I'm looking at um, some other, um, um, we have a similar paper on this on, on experimentation, where there's, there's the managerial version of when you should do experiments. And, you know, I think we have some important things to say that contradict the sort of the traditional managerial view. So, um, so you want to be informed by practice, but you don't want to be constrained by practice. I guess that's what I want to say. Um, well, that's, that, that's really helpful. I, I think a further on, uh, you know, Link, I, so I'm hearing this sort of uh, this, this emergent process and as Asim has well stated, a beautiful description of their way to write theory papers. So thank you for that. Randy Westgren had a question for you uh, that I think might be useful. And there's a couple of other private conversations coming in uh, to the chat. So maybe we'll get some more junior folks with their questions. Uh, but Randy, first you. Hey Randy, how are you? I'm well and you. I'm good, I'm good. So in the way that you have uh, recast dialogue uh, in AMR, and 
for myself, I'm finding this this new way of having scientific conversation very interesting and very rewarding. And it's often about you. You know, particularities that you can have a conversation about as opposed to trying to deal with all 37 pages of the, uh, of the paper. What's the next step in the evolution of that kind of scientific conversation for those of us in STR? Well, that's a great question. You know, the uh, dialogue um, um, was very hard as the editor of AMR. It was very, very hard. I think I, I mean, I've reviewed well, how many million, 1.7 million papers in my career. <laughs> I think I'd love to never have. You know, I knew, I knew how to review papers. I knew how to, I, I, could, I knew how to sign them. I know that stuff is not hard. But dialogues are a different beast, you know. Um, they're only eight pages long, which is right, and I'm not changing that. And and in that eight page, you still have to make a theoretical contribution, so it has to be narrower and focused. And so it took me a long time, probably two and a half years, two years, to thinking about what the dialogue should be, having some experience. And I've had really long conversations, some conversations with Sherry, the new AMR editor, about this. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I wonder what a dialogue session will look like at SMJ. And my concern would be that it would be, you know, you, you forgot to square the second term in the fourth regression in the correlations, I mean, which is of course useless. I mean, I, who could care less? Um, uh, maybe not, maybe there would be, maybe we, we, maybe if you had a dialogue session that was more focused and carefully edited, we could avoid that problem. But that would be our first response, I'm afraid, right now. I was speaking to the nature of those papers right now. Um, but it is the case, though, that, the, I mean, so, so you say, well, what other institutions, could, institutional arrangements could we use to try to encourage this kind of conversation? And, you know, I know uh, the division has various chat rooms and other kinds of things, but um, but, but, but it's costly to write a good doc dialogue. It's not easy. Um, these dialogues, I'm, I was the editor on them, and sometimes I would get additional reviewers, but, um, but I was the action editor on them. And they would go through four or five revisions. This is eight flipping pages, four revisions, you know? You know, this is the wrong word, you know, kind of things. And uh, because it's very costly to write them, um, you got to publish them in, in really highly respected top tier spots. So I'm not going to, I personally, and I think a lot of people would make the choice that, that if, if a dialogue is or a conversation takes place on a chat room, you're not going to get carefully crafted, detailed, insightful, theory generating conversations. It's going to be, they're going to be sort of just off the cuff kind of things. I'm not blaming people. I totally understand that. So if you're really going to have the kind of conversations that you were, you were hoping, I was hoping that we would generate with them and they're not all that good, but some of them are reached pretty high levels. Then, um, then it's going to have to be within the context of a top tier journal. And so AMR is that, um, SMJ, AMJ could be that. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. We, we never, when I was uh, serving as an officer at SMJ, uh, SMS, that question about dialogues never really came up at SMJ. 
Is anyone, who, we have any AEs, SMJ AEs here? Well, actually, Michael, your journal in many ways has the potential to become that conversation generating experience. Well, we, we that uh, would be an aspiration. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll make it, I mean, I, I mean, I, we're really happy, it, you know, our inaugural issue, you know, there's a nice little debate that's been started between David Teese and Peter Buckley about the future of the field and how we need to change the way we think. Um, yeah. Joe Mahoney has a nice essay with Dan Schindel talking about engaged scholarship, reinvigorating some of Andy Vandeven's statement. Sure, sure. Um, you know, but obviously we're not, uh, you know, well, we've been used to, we, I, I can say this, I'm, I'm proud of this. We were used in a tenure conversation this year in a Big Ten institution. So I'm okay. damn happy go. about that. There but uh, we're certainly not top tier. But I, I do think, you know, to the question is, there's a real disconnect between the private incentives for the faculty and the future of the field, which I think requires that we start engaging in something like these dialogues at AMR. So, Well, I have to say that, this, that what the SDR division has been doing uh, during the last year or so, I think even predated the pandemic, but certainly was uh, increased by the pandemic. It's been really, uh, talk about community building, it's just really impressive. Um, I've had a chance to meet with doctoral students uh, practicing their job talks. I mean, this, you know, and that's something you would do at the academy means, but you can't do. And so uh, all, these, all these kinds of institutional innovations are, are, are good things. But um, look, go ahead, Michael. No, so there is one private question on this topic that came in. Well, not on this topic, but on the doctoral student topic that you were, I thought maybe I jumped a little bit. Uh, but, but there was a couple of, I have two comments that are um, sort of asking me to raise the question of how you would evaluate ones on doctoral students and hiring and ones on junior faculty and sort of tenure. I mean, how do you think about evaluating candidates at those two stages? So, um, Maybe a few minutes on that, and then we have some other questions coming in from Elena, Tony, and Ian. Sure. Well, um, so evaluating doctoral students and evaluating, potential doctoral students, evaluating potential assistant professors are, are uh, completely different processes in my mind. Doctoral students, is, uh, it's really hard because, I mean, what do you have? You have an essay, you have grades, you have a GMAT. We like to talk to them. Like, we, well, I misspoke. Name. So this was sort of hiring assistant professors and oh, okay. then the second stage, right? And oh, okay. I misspoke. I'm sorry. No problem. So it's actually um, my primary criteria for hiring assistant professors. Um, over and above, do they, are they nice people? Can we get along? Do they seem to have the right good values? But substantively, it's really simple. Can I learn something from this person? The answer is no, then you know, why should I hire them? I don't understand why I want to do that. So, so if you're asking a question that I've never thought of, or asking a question I've thought of, but coming up with an answer I've never thought of, hey, wow, that's interesting. Um, we're, we, we, we're gonna look at only uh, students that are, have been trained at good schools. So they're, they're gonna have the methods, they're gonna have all that stuff. That, that, you know, using my language, that's a source of competitive parity, okay. Uh, some people might be really good at that, but you, you, everyone's gonna be good enough at a pretty high level to be able to do whatever has to be done methodologically to, and by the way, if, if, if you don't know some obscure 
uh, modeling technique that you actually need? Well, it turns out we have people at the University of Utah who do. Okay, so it's not a problem. We can, we can build that capability in you. That's not a hard issue. The real issue is, are you asking interesting questions? And interesting to me is, I've never thought of that question, and I see why it's important. Or, I've been thinking about it for five years, and your answer is new to me. That's what I'm looking for. So the, the, a version of, another version of this question I'm asked sometimes is a lot, some faculty, senior faculty, when they become full professors or sometimes even associate professors, they just stop writing, they just stop research. And I, I'm not, I'm not, don't want to make anyone a villain here. I understand because writing is really hard. <laughs> Publishing is really hard. And so, Gee, I can uh, work less hard and have a really good life, or I can do that. And I, I understand people making those trade-offs. I got family issues. I, I, I'm not blaming anyone. For me, um, I'm just so I'm just I'm I'm in love with the ideas, and uh, you get so excited about the idea that this is someone said earlier. The paper speaks to you. It reaches out to you. This is Bucky said. It's a, it's a, it, it, it says you have to you have to write this paper. Anita, you know we've had this conversation. It has to happen. I can't help myself. Um, there's a uh, uh, a great quote from um, uh, Stephen King, the novelist, um, that I read recently, and uh, and he was asked because he's a very prolific writer. In fact, at one point he actually adopted a pseudonym because the publishers were concerned that it was publishing too much that it would uh, it would uh, reduce the value of his brand so he adopted a pseudonym and then people figure it out and so it didn't matter very much and so people said well how, how why do you why do you choose to write so much and he said you think it's a choice i'm i'm compelled by my ideas i am compelled by my thoughts to to write and when we talk about loving ideas and loving uh, the writing process and contributing to the concepts. That's, that's where you have to be. That's when you're there, then when you become a full professor and a sub-professor, nothing, in my mind, nothing changed at all. Nothing, nothing, except I had more administrative responsibilities. So I was worse off on every dimension um, um, because I still did exactly the same work that I'd always been doing and at exactly the same rate with exactly the same purpose. and. Uh, which was that I was, because I was passionate about the work, deeply passionate about the work. So that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for someone who uh, we can be passionate together about their work so I can learn from them. I'm, yeah, but, 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 but the promotion of full to associate professor with tenure is even more important. I, I mean, can you imagine giving someone a lifetime job and then the next thing they do is stop working. And by working, I mean stop writing papers that engaging in conversations and debate. I mean, that's insane. That's, I would never do that on purpose. Um, I, I, I want to I, I tenure a person. And oh yeah, you got to have a certain number of A hits. I know, I, I know all the, those are counting. We, we, can, we can do that. Um, but, um, and it's true, unless you publish, it doesn't count, right? So you may have the world's best ideas, but unless it's in a paper and it's not part of the conversation, so it doesn't count so much. But um, 
Well, I know people who, um, whose objective function, using economic language, whose objective function is um, making sure that in the sixth year they have six top tier publications. Whether they have any coherence, whether they design a point of view, whether they are collectively more valuable than they are individually is not relevant. And that is a problem. Um, it is, it is possible, it's gonna shock junior people, it's possible to write too much, you know. We, uh, years ago at UCLA, we had a guy, a full professor someplace else apply for a position. And I've never seen a resume like that since, this is, you know, 40 years ago. This, this guy had like three, 400 publications. He had a table of contents for his resume. I am not exaggerating. Um, all these papers are on page, 14 to 23 and these papers on, I mean, it was unbelievable. And then we all looked at each other and says, how many of you, have, has anyone read any of these papers? And the answer was no, we're not interested. So, uh, so yeah. So an amen to that, but that's just me. And, uh, but uh, Juice, thank you for your comment. I'm just gonna read this for Jay because it resonated with me and, and he says, it's infectious to hear Jay's continued enthusiasm for writing, developing ideas, and contributing to the field. I think that's something for all of us to aspire to. I mean, and it just to me, this segmentation between counting and idea generation is um, important for us all to consider. Thank you. But uh, so, so Elena Plaksinkova, my colleague at Ohio State, had a Hi, question Elena. some time ago. So I will ask her to sort of clarify that. Uh, thank you, Michael. So uh, first, thanks a lot, uh, Jay and Michael. I mean, this is an amazing session. I feel like I'm really, really learning a lot about the field in general. And uh, actually, my question was inspired by your answer to Buki's question, which was that uh -huh. you take often inspiration from, uh, you, know, you look at what managers do, what they say, and this gives inspiration for theory contribution. And actually, recently, I had this weird experience. I was looking for some, uh, you know, real-life illustrations. And uh, when I try to look at what managers say, it kind of uh, comes down to, I don't know if it's correct to call them like micro reasons. Like for instance, I was actually looking something about alliances and they were saying, yeah, it's, it's about like, the personal trust between me and the other CEO. It's uh, like whether our cultures fit. And I kind of had this experience several times. So in a sense, I was wondering, you know, if this, how we should think about this, like, is it something that, you know, maybe you should start thinking more about integrating micro and macro, or maybe it's actually on the other hand, a blind spot of managers. So you're curious to hear your thoughts um, on this issue. Well, the, um, um, the integration of micro and macro uh, already exists in strategy. This is, this is the irony. Um, so the, uh, my own sense is, uh, for example, this, the, the hottest area right now in human resource management is strategic human resource management. Under what conditions can human capital be a source of economic profits and competitive advantage? Um, is that a micro concept or is that a macro concept? And the answer is clearly yes. Um, so there, and uh, there's a, a lot of that going on. Um, now, the, the thing about managers is tricky, okay, because I, 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 have, I have, first of all, enormous respect for what they do. I mean, it's like, I, I have enormous respect for high school teachers, because you gotta be crazy. But then there's junior high school teachers, which is like really crazy. You gotta be so dedicated, a special human being, 
I'm not there, okay? And I think the same way about managers. I mean, every day you got to get up, you got to deal with leadership issues, personnel issues, operational issues. You got to be tough on some people. You got to be nurturing on others. And you got to, those are all really micro. And then you have to choose a strategy and implement and all, all at the same time, plus your family life. So, I mean, I have great admiration. But they're often wrong, you know, about their explanations for things. I use an example from years ago. Uh, this company I was working with was doing very, very well. I, I asked the, the CEO, I said, why are you guys so successful? He said, oh, it's our top management team. I said, really? I said, oh, yeah, we're awesome. Well, we've been together for 20 years. We, we complete each other's senses. We make decisions like that. We're all well-educated. Well, it was just, we're just awesome. Top management team. I said, great. In my mind, I went valuable. And tell me about the top management team of your competitors. Oh, they're really good. Okay, okay. It, it can't be the case that their top management team is a source of competitive advantage if all the top management teams are all really, really good. So he's right. He was right. But he was also wrong. Um, so um, you, you, while we learn from managers, while we respect managers, while we, they create dilemmas for us, you know, um, we don't always believe their explanations. I don't always believe their explanations. Now, so that's the general point. Now, the specific point on micro and macro. Um, yeah, I, I've always, I, I read an article a long time ago, it was a book chapter, uh, that said that if you take the search for competitive advantage seriously, what you discover is OB. That is, you discover organizational behavior because it's about people, it's about relationships. It's not about plans, which can be copied and imitated. It's not about strategies per se. It's about the things that make a firm distinctive, and those are almost always a macro flavor culture, relationships, trust. I read an article on trustworthiness as a source of competitive advantage for that reason. And, and certainly, the stuff on student human resources is in, in, that, in that category. Um, I'm not sure that um, the OB people either are interested or care about that. Um, and so um, my sense and I, it, I, it's, it is, is that a lot of OB people, not all of them certainly, the best are not this, but a lot of OB people sort of are really good at talking among themselves and are not interested in the fact that they, uh, they are the source of our independent variables. So strategy is, has, has always been interdisciplinary. It continues to be. It's um, in the um, AOM world, it's considered macro. And, and, uh, but the theory is deeply multi-level in nature. Um, some of the research isn't, but that's because it's hard to get micro strategy relevant data. I grant that and I understand that. But the stuff that really matters seems to, from a resource-based view, is would be the the organizational kinds of phenomena and concepts. So, yeah. Now, um, that's consistent with this emphasis on micro foundations. Is consistent with this emphasis on behavior, behavioral dimensions of strategy. Uh, so we have a lot to do in integrating and making that work. But that seems to me to be a very fruitful way to go. It has been for me theoretically. 
Yeah, we have a question. We have a couple of questions. One from uh, Ali just came. That's just a follow on to Elena's about the micro foundations movement. And uh, I don't know if maybe you want to clarify that. I mean, one of the things I've tried to think about is if we think about, let's say, the conversation about our, what our OB colleagues are doing with big five personality characteristics. And I've always struggled to make the link linkage between narcissism and strategic factor market behavior. But, you know, maybe it can be made. Ali, do you have other specific questions you'd like to ask Jay on the micro foundations? Ali, you were much more attractive when you had your daughter with you. <laughs> Mary wants to participate in every session. I understand. That's, I understand. that's given. She wants to make sure that I'm doing the right work and it's <laughs> fruitful. That's good. She's that's three good. years old. She's oh, really? three years old. Yes. She's a precocious three-year-old, no doubt. <laughs> um, thank you so much. I, I just thought Elena's questions, uh, like, leads leads us to discussion of the micro foundations which you've written about so i would love to hear more about this this aspect of the theorizing because i think it's 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 really an interesting um perspective being like having worked in organizations and now i am in academia i think it all goes back to the bottom level to the individual levels as you've written about that so I just thought of hearing your, your thoughts about it. Uh, thank you well, so much. First of all, I, I do have one paper with Teppo uh, um, on this. And Teppo was really one of the uh, initiators. I used to give Teppo a bad time about the uh, micro foundations movement. I said, there are more papers calling for micro foundations than papers on micro foundations. Um, he laughed. So we, we, we wrote the paper together. It was a delight because often when I write with uh, co-authors the first time, they'll write something and I'll have to completely rewrite it and really force them to think it. But Teppo was a really good writer. I mean, he's amazingly skilled. So that was, that was a wonderful experience. Uh, in that paper, we sort of made the argument that, um, that if, it's, if, if all micro foundations is, is taking standard OB stuff and dropping it into a strategy context, that's, uh, it's not, that's nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't really realize the full potential. What we really want to do is we want to say, how do, how does the micro phenomena inside an organization interact in ways that are non-trivial, have non-trivial implications for strategic choices? So the aggregation effects and the interaction across these. So uh, when people talk about behavioral strategy, if behavioral strategy means um, Kahneman Tversky applied to strategic decision-making, okay, that, that's fine. But if behavioral strategy means that uh, the way we think about strategy has to be turned upside down in some more fundamental way, that might include Kahneman Tversky in prospect theory, then that, that, would, be, that would be more interesting, I would think. So uh, that's, all that paper did was call for that. I don't think we really developed it. I think the development part is, well, uh, I, again, I apologize going back to my 2018 paper, but I have been thinking about this a long time. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, in, in one of the issues in that, in that paper that, that, that gets generated is the importance of co-specialized uh, assets in a firm. Uh, that is what the, what managers do is they bring 
co-specialized assets together in a way that generates economic profits and then they'll distribute those to stakeholders. And this, this co-specialization process, I don't think we understand it at all. I mean, literally, I think, I mean, I can label it, oh, that's co-specialized. But think what that means. That means I'm willing to put my future, financial and organizational future in your hands and vice versa. Why does that happen? It's like getting married for peace sakes. I mean, it's like, and, and you know, if it doesn't work, it's really costly. And if it does work, it's got this wonderful thing that can come out of it. Um, I don't think we understand that. And that seems to like a deeply micro phenomenon. And by the way, how that happens has got to have an impact how that, how that co-specialization actually evolves in organizations has to have a huge impact on things we, we do care about deeply, like how our profits actually distributed among stakeholders. I mean, th there's got to be a link between those two. And I don't, I don't think we, so it's going back to one of Nina's very first questions, co-specialization is about building community among stakeholders. Uh, is that micro or macro? I can't decide. I, if something comes to mind from this statement, it's just the, the work of Paul Krugman uh -huh. about, about specialization in the areas. Maybe that is something. This is a very possible. It's very possible. I, you know, the thing about it is um, I, I, I'm slow these ways. I've, I've actually only come to the point in my thinking where I now recognize that this is a really important question. And usually when that happens, what I do is I try to find a really smart co-author who knows stuff you know that I don't know, or Bucky knows that I don't know, and, uh, and uh, say, hey, let's, uh, let's figure this out together. And they'll introduce me to the literature, and then I'll... So I, I was going to say earlier, you were asking about the role of literature in generating ideas. I, I'm, I'm like the world's worst literature person. Just, just take that as... I mean, I'm, do, not, do not follow my example here. Um, I, I, I'm not a good reader. Um, I, I would much prefer thinking than reading. Um, I remember Jay and I used to have this big stack of unopened journals uh, in the days when we actually got those. Big stack of unopened journals on his desk. And he, I said, Wait, what's that about? He says, well, I'd like to bring the PhD students in. And I, I say, you see all these journals? These are all the journals I'm not reading so that I can write. I think that's brilliant. Okay, so so I've got to think and read and write. Read a few critical things and think deeply about them. But um, but it's helpful to have people who know things like Ali was talking about that I may not know about and, and engage that, bring that in part of the conversation. Thank you. I'm going to jump around a little bit. Ian uh, McFarland has to leave shortly, but had this question about stakeholders mm -hmm. um, and uh, with. Hey, uh, Everybody on this call, that would be probably be yes, a... That is actually where Ian lives. That's not a fake background. That's the house. <laughs> it's a long story. It's the inside of a uh, old water tower my neighborhood's trying to refurbish. Oh, that's beautiful. That's wonderful. It really wasn't a question. I've just uh, uh, seen you in the hallways, Jay, and, and at AOM meetings and was really thrilled. And I think it was the Atlanta meeting in 2018 when... I had been learning about stakeholder theory at all the meetings and, and heard you and Mahoney and others talking about 
the integration with strategy. And it was just, I was just thrilled to hear that because my company had bought into uh, a kind of a stakeholder framework and it was kind sure. of a validation because we had been working so much with strategy, RBV and other things prior to that. And therefore the two hadn't really mixed, at least from my view. Uh-huh. Um, That's right. That's right. So all good, all good. So it really wasn't a question, just a just a thank you. And Appreciate that. I'll see you at the next. Uh, I'll, I'll be in the audience someplace throwing tomatoes. Well, it was, it's uh, that was a been, it's been a fun process, and there have been several people, one, two, three people that I can see here that were part of my evolution journey. I have to tell you a a, a funny story. Jim Walsh came to that uh, conference I mentioned earlier uh, in um, at Zion. And uh, we, we, he somehow emergence the, the concept of emergence came up. Do you remember this, Anita? And uh, and I said I've always thought whenever I heard something is an emergent process, that that's code for we don't really know what's going on. So code for ignorance. And she says, "Would someone give that guy a hug?" <laughs> a little, little bit over the top. So that's awesome. Thanks. Well, I do have a then a detailed question. Again, okay. sort of this is my last call for the any junior folks with specific questions they want to ask. But Tony Tong has been thinking uh, about uh, big data and maybe oh. you know, the linkages between theory and uh, big data or data-driven studies. So maybe I'll let Tony. Ah, but big data and data-driven studies are two different things, right? So, uh, so I don't know anything about big data. I feel comfortable in, 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 in reviewing my ignorance my suspicion is that big data will allow us to find, sometimes find um, small effects that would that are important theoretically. I mean, as ends get bigger, you, everything is significant, right? So, um, right. You know, I think the problem with big data is um, one of the problems with big data has to be, or at least a concern you should have, is that you are constrained in big data typically by questions that other people are asking rather than the questions you're asking. So uh, Amazon collects big data to do, say, say, for example, to do pricing or to do product differentiations, say, to do pricing studies. If you price it here, what happens to demand price it here? It's really interesting if you're interested in pricing, but what if you're not interested in pricing? So I would hate to be... Um, become a slave to the uh, data generation questions that someone else was, someone else was asking. Um, now, if it turns out that the questions you are asking are uh, perfectly uh, aligned with the data that was collected in big data, then that sounds like a wonderful outcome. And then so, and well, how can you say that's a bad thing? Um, setting aside ethical and other issues, but if, assuming all that is in place, then yeah, then, then big data, is uh, is a fine tool. Um, I mean, so big data to me is like um, it's like any uh, any methodological approach. Uh, if it's if it helps you uh, address an important theoretical question, then awesome. Um, if it doesn't, I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I'm just not interested in big data per se. I'm only interested in that big data or two stage these squares or instrumental or whatever, however you want to do it. Uh, I'm only interested if is, can those 
methods help me understand a core issue or core question that's important in the field of strategy. And, and maybe they can, but um, I haven't seen a lot of proof of that yet, but maybe, I mean, I'm ignorant, so I, I, I you know, acknowledge that. So, so thanks, uh, thanks, Jay, for, uh, <coughs> for sharing your thoughts about big data, especially uh, uh, with, re with regard to, uh, you know, complementing our, you know, research uh, question that we, uh, that we pursue. Uh, my, my question also has a sort of a teaching uh, component oh. to that. And so, so what I've learned from uh, the graduate school from you and many other, you know, great teachers on this panel is that, you know, we teach uh, strategy concepts and, you know, frameworks or theories, you know, using case studies, right? So that's the sort of the, I would say the typical approach that has been, you know, used in strategy teaching for, you know, for years, sure. for dec decades. Sure. Now, something that's, you know, I think it's increasingly the, the case is that, you know, I feel that uh, especially for middle managers, I would think. So managerial decision making, I would think, is increasingly you know big data driven. And here, you know, big data is not just in terms of the, I guess, the quantity, but also in terms of the, you know, the the complexity, also the types of data that we have, and uh, uh, the instantaneous, you know, kind of nature of you know big data. So how would this trend, I would say, in this increasingly, increasingly big data-driven decision-making impact uh, the, the sort of the content and also the, the ways that we teach uh, strategic management concepts, uh, especially to MBAs and to master's students? And, and uh, what, what we've seen, I think, in, in the business school, in other divisions or other departments that, you know, they, they integrate analytics with, say, you know, marketing, for example, marketing analytics or information analytics. So is there something that, you know, we could do, let's say, you know, strategy analytics maybe that we can create or, or maybe that has already been created that, but I'm not really aware of. Uh, so I'd like to, uh, you know, hear your thoughts. So let, let me try to be provocative, Tony, as, as you uh, always would prefer, I think. So, yeah. Um, you know, I think we teach just enough statistical analysis in the MBA program to make our students really dangerous. I mean, uh, everyone here knows how hard it is to fit, to rigorously fit a model to data, really carefully and systematically and thoughtfully. And there may be managers out there who can do that, but actually I've never met them. Now, th th there may be, and maybe what you're talking about is a change ultimately to, um, uh, incorporating analytical approaches to, to strategic management more deeply into organizations. And certainly consulting firms can do those kinds of things. But when you ask a middle manager, here's some data, uh, we want you to uh, uh, run a regression and based on that, make a decision. You know, they'll get it wrong most of the time because it's hard to do right. Because uh, as, as, it was easy to do, we would be much easier to write all these papers. But I had to have a more fundamental question about that as well, which is that uh, let's imagine a world, <laughs> am I a theorist or what? Let's imagine a world where your vision, Tony, actually is implemented. That is, these data analytical techniques are, 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 are taught, are absorbed, are used. I know where he's going. Well, if they're not going to be a source of economic profits, where's the competitive advantage here? We all have roughly the same data. 
you would all analyze them about the same way. Yeah, I'm sorry, Rich. It's almost boring at some point. <laughs> and so, uh, and so, um, I heard it said this way. It was by an accounting person. It was shocking. She said, um, "If you can write something down and measure it very, very carefully, it's not going to be a source of economic profits." So. Um, so uh, in some sense, uh, that doesn't deny the importance of doing analytical work when you can, because you want to get to that competitive parity point. But uh, in the end, strategy, if strategy is interested in generating appropriate economic profits, then there's another level that has to sort of be, we have to be thinking about something, do all the analytics and then something else beyond that is the source of competitive advantage. Sorry, Rich, that was sort of uh, predictable. Well, I, I think what I will do is ask the penultimate question. So I'll, I'll, I'm gonna leave the honor for the final uh, stream of questions to a seam unless something else comes in. But um, as we get to the, the end of our second hour, is there, you know, looking back, so I, I hate to ask this question because it seems like looking back on your career, but no, are there- I, I am old, look at my hair. It, well, it, uh, it's not gray. It's light black, light black. So very, very light black. With that introduction, I will share. Um, well, I remember you used to tell this joke about somebody coming to an academy meeting and um, Jay Barney, you must be, I thought you were dead. That's right. Um, I didn't know that actually did happen. That's not a joke. <laughs> Dr. Stone said, you're Jay Barney? I thought you were dead. Well, only in some ways, I think. Well, I, I have felt that this summer uh, with the, the <laughs> yes. coronavirus, so maybe I'm getting uh, to that age. But but as 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 you think about this, you know, are there challenges? Are there lessons in the career? Sort of these sort of this overarching. Maybe this is reflecting back on some of the opening comments from Anita and others about community building. But it, it, are there lessons in your career? Challenges mm -hmm. or triumphs you might be willing to share with the group? Sort of to wrap. Sure, I think that. Um... So when I was an assistant professor, I, so I'm not, I, was, I was deeply ambitious. Part of it was practical. I mean, I had a family to feed and house and things, but deeply ambitious and, and pretty obnoxious. <laughs> um, uh, always worked by myself because uh, no one was, I mean, I just wanted to do it myself, have control. And, Probably one of the reasons it took me so long. I had great mentors, don't get me wrong. Bill Ochi, Dick Armel, Bill McKellies, but but I was I was a pretty much a lone wolf. Um, and then looking back, it, it, the thing that uh, I actually have come to value is is the relationships, the friendships I have with people. I've told this story before, and so I'll I'll try to tell it. Um, this is Helly Wang. This is a story with Helly Wang. She was a PhD student of mine at Ohio State, and she hates it when I tell this story and she's in the room. So, um, uh, so uh, Helly was incredibly smart. And I know that doesn't surprise anybody because we see what she's done since then. But um, I have a, I used to have a, a end of the first year meeting with the PhD students and ask them what their research interests are. And, you know, after the first year, sometimes they're not very well developed. Helly had three ideas, all of which were subsequently published in a journal. So after her first year in the PhD program, she just had this intuition for interesting ideas. Um, but I was there when she got married and, 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 and when she had her first baby anyway, she moved to uh, University of Hong Kong Science and Te Technology in Hong Kong. Great school, 
great place. I hope it remains so. But um, and so I was. I, she invited me, and I stayed, went there for a week. And I hadn't seen her or her family. She, her first daughter's name was Joy. I hadn't seen her in five years. So she was a baby when I last saw her, and now she's a five-year-old girl. Right? And uh, there's an apartment uh, that you stay in that I stayed in on campus. And uh, they called. Uh, she, Helly called down from downstairs, and I came down. And Helly was staying over there, and then there was this little five-year-old girl. She was playing and dancing. You know how they do, just playing and dancing. And then she looked at me. She said, she looked at her mom. She said, Grandpa Jay? <laughs> That's what this is about, guys. I mean, come on, Grandpa Jay. I'm her dissertation advisor. <laughs> We're co-authors on papers. But that's, that's what it's really about, is those friendships and relationships and things we... So if, if, the, if the objective function is to get the next paper published, I'm, which was for much of my life, that was, that was a mistake. It, I'm not saying that that's unimportant. We got to get the next paper published. I got it. But the process of creating that next paper is a, is a deeply social process that we develop these relationships and that's the thing, that's the thing, so. Wow, well, well thank you for sharing that. And uh, so I, I think I'm gonna transition to a lighter note. Please. <laughs> and, and, and Asim, I know you, you, you Asim's gonna rapid fire you in, okay. in, in the way, only the way he can. I see awesome. and, and if, and if somehow this doesn't work, I will make sure we uh, come back with other interesting questions. Okay. Actually, it, it, you know, um, I'm going to rapid fire you in the way that only Samina really can. But <laughs> she's not here, I'm going to try to do my best imitation of her. Um, okay. um, uh, so, so Jay, first off, just, you know, thank you so much. It, it, it's just, you know, it's always inspiring, always enlightening. Uh, I'm almost... I'm almost sad to bring down the tone of the conversation by asking you these questions, but I'm going to do it anyway, because that's pretty much my role, as you know, in, in the intellectual community, which is to make everything ridiculous. Um, so, um, set of rapid fire questions just to get to know you better as a person. Sure. Uh, sure. What do you like to do to unwind? To unwind? Um, in the last few months, my wife and I are taking a binge watching uh, BBC murder mysteries. <laughs> uh, we're watching them. Um, oh, what's his name? Gently, George Gently. <laughs> a long time ago. So uh, I have, uh, in norm more normal times, um, I ski. I'm a lot, I love to ski. So I, I uh, where I live is 12 miles from the base of Park City Mountain Resort. So. Um, I'm one of those disgusting people who look out and say, yeah, there's a cloud. I'm not going skiing today. So, yeah. so we, we, uh, that's, we, I take advantage of that. And then in the rest of the year, we, uh, we have um, ridden bicycles. My wife and I ride bikes, uh, road bikes. I tried to do mountain biking recently and almost got killed. So I'm not sure if I'm moving on that one yet. But, uh, so. Okay. Um, oh, by the way, one thing I do, to, what's that? Have you done, I mean, I, you did the Pyrenees a couple of years ago, several years ago. Oh, yeah. Have you we, done anything we, like that? We did a, uh, you know, talking about building community. Uh, one of the things we did, and 
when I first moved to the University of Utah, it wasn't my idea, but I got, I thought it was a great idea, is that we had a departmental bike ride and about half of the department went. And we went from, we rode bikes from um, Lyon, France to Barcelona, Spain. And uh, over 10 days and, you know, we, those of us who were on that trip still build on that today. So it was fun. I also listen to music. I, my, uh, my wife was very generously purchased a awesome amplifier, not digital amplifiers are, are fine. This is a tube based amplifier. It's just magnificent. Yeah. So listen to some good music. Favorite genre of music? Ooh. The 60s, 1860s, 1960s. <laughs> I actually, uh, Anita knows this, I love opera. I love opera. And, and uh, it is the case that I can turn some opera uh, arias on that I've heard a thousand times, and it still brings tears to my eyes every time. So are you a so Wagner pop. person or a Verdi person? No, 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 Verdi. Wagner was a little too heavy duty. But I mean, I, that not, I, miss, I wish I had that talent, but uh, no, uh, no, more Verdi than Wagner. Okay. Um, you were talking about travel earlier, favorite city? Oh, favorite cities. Wow. Wow. So, uh, you know, that's going to be a cop-out because my favorite cities are where my favorite people are. So... I have some great friends in Barcelona. I love to go to, so I love to go to Barcelona. Um, you know, um, my, I'm from California originally. My parents are in, uh, my parents were in, in Northern California, but I go back to California now. It's a little too crowded for my taste. LA is out of control. So I don't, don't spend much time there. Um, I, can, I, I can see how living in Utah, right in the ski slopes, you may not be so excited. It, about it's really California. an interesting <laughs> problem because people say, where are you going on vacation? I say, yeah, I'm staying here. <laughs> people come here people, to go yeah. on vacation. So we just, we just hang out here and, uh, and uh, we're good. Okay. So um, reading outside of work, uh, fiction and nonfiction? Um, almost all nonfiction. And like what type of nonfiction? Um, Philosophy, memoirs, histories, and biographies. Histories uh -huh. and biographies. In fact, um, you can't see, but this entire wall of books over here is all uh, ninety percent histories and biographies. Um, uh, I, I find um, great inspiration. It's actually in part of um, the theory of development. Um, uh, understanding how leaders in uh, prior centuries. Uh, we're able to motivate individuals to do incredible things. Um, uh, I have a, a, a favorite uh, story about Robert E. Lee. I know he's a Confederate general and that's not popular right now, but as you can be a leader in a bad cause, but he was an amazing leader. He was loved by his men. And, and uh, one of his worst decisions in the history of the Civil War was called Pickett's Charge, which was at uh, Gettysburg. Uh, Pick's Charge was uh, a brigade um, that was asked to walk across an open field a mile and a half long, uh, attacking a Union position that was defended by a, a, um, a stone wall. And um, the casualty rates were 80%. It was disastrous, disastrous. 
and basically you know, it, was, it was called the high point of the, the Civil War for the uh, Confederacy because after that it was all downhill from there. Anyway, um, those 20% of the people who were left who could walk back to the, uh, to the starting point in, in some trees, uh, General Lee on his horse traveler uh, rides up and, and he's deeply apologetic. He's apologizing to these men. It's all my fault. I asked you to do something that couldn't be done. And these men who had just experienced Pickett's charge uh, said, uh, that's not true, General. That's not true. Let us reform and we'll hit him again. They were willing to do that again because they loved General Lee. That's interesting. Powerful, obviously, but it's interesting. How does, how does a leader have that kind of relationship with, its, with his or her subordinates? Yeah. Uh, that's well, fascinating. So anyway, history. Sounds, sounds kind of like the INR process, but uh, <laughs> 80% of your paper gets killed and then you have to send back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, so just, just building on that, so um, you know, if, if, you, if you could have dinner with a famous leader or from history, who would you? Oh, famous history, leader from history. Oh, James. Um, I, I'm just thinking quick off my head. Several came to mind, but Winston Churchill is a very impressive fellow to me, and I would, and uh, he is an interesting combination of arrogance and humility and racism and globalism and he's a certainly a man of his times but uh he would be interesting to hang around with i think so yeah almost as interesting as anita <laughs> well i didn't but anita you don't get the cigar smoke so there you That's go true. <laughs> Steve, you haven't hung out with me enough <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> okay then uh we'll we'll get to you anita like on 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 uh, next thursday um uh, uh, favorite dessert, Jay? A favorite dessert? I'd probably just say ice cream. Yeah, unfortunately. Favorite flavor of ice cream? You can't get um, away with that. Like. Uh, chocolate chip mint. <laughs> it's really boring. I know. No, no, it's good. Um, okay, um, I'm going to ask one last. Uh, I'm very tempted to ask you the difference between IBV and transaction costs. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll I, I spare us all that. Thank you. Thank, um, you. thank you so much for doing this, Jay. Um, uh, you know, again, on behalf of the division, I'm going to hand it back to Michael, but just thanks so much. And thanks also for, you mentioned this earlier, thanks for being part of the PhD network shops as well. Uh, you know, that was really, all, really informative for me. Uh, Mike, Michael, all yours. Yeah. So let me, let me just close again. Uh, let's all, maybe we can, uh, Knock on wood, a thanks to Jay. This has uh, been a fantastic two hours for me. I'm just having sat through several of these, all the questions were uh, great. And I, uh, I judge my success by the, how little I talk. So hopefully we did okay. So thank you, Jay. Thank you, uh, And look forward to seeing everybody again in person, uh, hopefully as soon as possible. All righty, talk thank to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you.